want to ask you to turn to the book of Judges, chapter 1, and then right next to Judges is the book of Ruth. We're going to start in Ruth just for a moment, and then we're going to go back to Judges, and then we're going to go back to Ruth. Good morning. Y'all doing all right? Good morning. Energy. There we go. Come on. Energy. All right. All right. Look with me in Ruth 1.1, and then we'll go to the left, and we'll start in in Judges 1. I want to kind of set the stage for what we're going to look at today so we can see the context of uh, the story we're going to examine. Ruth 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine. In uh, In the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. So as we come today to look at the story of this lady named Ruth and her mother-in-law Naomi and a guy named Boaz, we're going to see today that it's set in the time frame of the judges. And so I want to kind of help us understand uh, where this fits in, in, re, in regard to historical matters. So you can kind of see uh, the time period and everything. So if you would go to, go to your left, the book just next to that. And go to the book of Judges and go to chapter 1. This is the time period that is after Joshua's come in. They've settled in the land and they have uh, settled it. They're living there. Joshua's generation dies. There's a period of time called the period of the Judges. And it's, uh, and it's a 400-year period from about 1500 B.C. to 1100 B.C. It's where this takes place. The, the story of Ruth is going to take place early on uh, because the story we looked at last week with Rahab, um, she is the mother of, of Boaz that we will see and we will encounter in the story today. So look with me just for a moment. Go to verse 19 and let me set up kind of the context of everything that's going on here. Judges 1.19. There was an issue that Israel experienced as they began to live in the land after they had conquered it. Judges 1.19. And the Lord was with Judah. And he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants. Look at verse 21. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites. Look at 127. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants. The end of verse 28. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. Look at 29. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Do you get the pattern here? What's going on? They're not doing what? They're not driving out the people that are there. This becomes an issue with them. Let me tell you why this is. The failure to drive out these people resulted over and over in Israel's history of them drifting into idolatry. These people that were living in the land worshipped false gods. Israel over time... And this is a sad thing about them. God had uniquely come and said, Abram, I'm going to make a people from you. And from this family, there was going to be this special group of people. They were going to be uniquely identified as God's people. They just never, ever did really well with this reality. They would drift. They would have periods of time that they really walked well with God. But for the most part of their life, they would drift to these um, idols and always this was connected with it and it's the same way today when we drift to idols the next thing that always comes is another i word and it's called immorality and they are always connected together 
So Israel would worship idols. It would result in immorality that would fill the land. And there were all kinds of things happening. So, so Israel, sadly, never stood on their own for very long. They never fully found long-term that Christ and God was the full satisfaction, the, the great treasure. They just kept going after the trinkets of the world, and it became an issue for them. So go to Judges 2, verse 1. Let's continue to kind of look at the context here. Judges 2, verse 1. And the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. They shall become a thorn in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. Go to chapter 2, verse 10. And all that generation, this is Joshua's generation, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Look at 11. And so here's what the people did. They forgot their heritage. They forgot what God had done. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the bells. These were idols. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt, and they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. So they abandoned the Lord and served the bells and the Ashtaroth. And so the anger of the Lord, in 14, was kindled against Israel, and so he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. Now, just stop there for a moment. I just find it such tragedy that God has said, you're going to be my people. If you'll walk in my commandments, it's going to go so well with you in the land. And they just rejected and rejected. And so when they went out to fight against their enemies, God's hand was against them and he would not let them win many, many of these battles. And so they couldn't withstand their enemies. Look at 16 of chapter 2. So here's what God did. God raised up saviors, redeemers, rescuers. So the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of hand of those who plundered them. And yet they did not listen to their judges. And they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. And they soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. And whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Now go down to 21 of chapter 2. And so God says, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord their father, as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So let me just set the stage here. You kind of get the picture. This is a dark, dark time in the nation's history. Here's what would happen. So Joshua's generation has died. The Israelites began to worship other gods. God, and it was a pattern. It's kind of like a circle. So they're right with God. Good things. They would worship idols. An enemy would come in. They would cry out to God. God would raise up a judge. He would rescue them. And they just did this over 
and over and over for 400 years. At the beginning of this time, we're going to see a story today um, with Ruth, and it is in the midst of the context of this that is really important because it's probably early on in the time of the judges. But this is a dark period in Israel's history. And so I want to, I want to kind of set the stage for this. So what does God do when his people have rejected him and they have turned and they've gone their own way? Well, let me just remind you of this. And God has always and will always have a remnant of people. No matter how much <clears throat> there's a rejection of God, God is always at work. The Reformation that took place a little over 500 years ago. Leading up to the Reformation, there were all kinds of people along the way historically where the church was really dark and it was a dark age of the church. There were points of light in the midst of the church, men and women of God who were passionate about truth, calling the church back to the scripture and back to a right worship. And so though the Reformation was this huge revival and this great seismic shift, 500 years ago, leading up to that, there were really key people. In the book of the Judges, though a dark period of time, there was beautiful lights, and we're going to see one of those today where God was at work and he was doing something. Now, today's not going to be one of those, the walls are going to fall down. There's not going to be one of those things where um, this big slaying of serpents and all this kind of stuff, it's just going to be God's going to work in the midst of one family and he's going to do this beautiful thing. And so, so here's the point this morning. Sometimes we come and we, we're like, man, give me a fired up sermon. Well, I want to give you a great fire up sermon. God can move and God can work in the midst of the hopelessness of family situations. God can do that. And we're going to see today in the life of Ruth that that happens. So go back to Ruth and let's begin to walk through this. I've titled today, Ruth from Brokenness to blessedness and we will see today that if God seems far away or God seems disinterested we will see today that God is always at work and God is doing things and we're going to see his work in the midst of a family Ruth 1 1 through 5 in the days when the judges ruled there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab he and his wife and his two sons the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Apathites from Bethlehem and Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. And these took Moabite wives. And the name of one was Orpah and the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilion died so that the women so that the woman was left, speaking of Naomi, without her two sons and her husband. Now look up here for a moment. In our lives, this is the way we want life to work. We want life to be point A to point B, straight line. Because if it's a straight line, we don't get distracted along the way. But it's just not how life is, is it? Here's what life is. Life is not point A to point B. Life is this. It's just bends and curves, is it not? And sometimes in those bends and curves, we just literally have to stop the brakes. We have to stop down or we have to slow down. And that's just, that's just the way life is. It's not this point A to point B. There is a point A to point B, but it's just it's this kind of thing. Sometimes it's like this, isn't it? Like, how do I climb this? How am I going to get over it? I can't see over that. And, and it's there. But God, in the midst of all of that, is always active and he's always doing something. And this is what takes place in this family 
where the husband is Elimelech and uh, the wife is Naomi. So let me kind of kind of help us understand what's going on here. So it's the time of the judges, incredibly dark time. So a famine has come into Israel. And probably Elimelech probably owns land. We know that he owns land. They probably grow crops. He can't grow crops. He looks at his family. He looks at his two sons, his wife, and he realizes, what are we going to do? He gets word, okay, things are better in Moab. Again, go back to watch this. This is the beauty of God. The beauty of God is this, is sometimes we make choices that don't line up with Scripture and probably aren't the best decisions. And you know what God does? He's so awesome. Even in the midst of decisions that maybe aren't the best decisions, God can come in the midst of those decisions, and He does something in the midst of that. So here's a people that say, don't, again, we just saw in Judges a while ago, don't bow down to the gods of these other people. So what does Elimelech do? He just moves his family in the midst of people who worship other gods. So they land in Moab. They're there. Things are a little bit better. I guess they've heard famine. They go to Moab. When they're there, they get there. Elimelech dies. Not too long later, the sons, or at some point in time, the sons have married Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. Naomi's two sons die. So now her husband is dead. Her two sons are dead. They are childless marriages at this point in time. And so, so Malon and Chilion have married Orpah and Ruth, and there's no children. And in Moab, both have sons have died, and all that's happened now after, listen to this, after 10 years, Ruth takes an inventory of her life and just goes, all that I've gotten from these 10 years is heartache and misery. This is, what, this is what's come. We've left Bethlehem, we've come to Moab, and I have literally lost everything in my life. And at times, some of the worst heartache in our lives is connected with regret. Because regret just tells us this, that we have wasted years, we have wasted time, and they've been spent without any seeming purpose. And so here's 10 years, she's lost everything And she just kind of looks at her life, and I think there's probably regret that happens in Naomi because for 10 years, all that she's experienced is blow after blow, tragedy after tragedy. So look at verse 6 now. We just read verse 5. Verse 6 says this, And then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. So things are bad. She's lost everything. Ten years are up. So she decides, well, I, I can go back to Bethlehem, Elimelech own land. I can get the land. I've heard now that food is growing again in Israel. So daughters-in-law, let's go back to Bethlehem. And so they begin the process of going back. And this news about what's happening in Israel leads her back. But she is going back with a heavy, heavy heart. Now you know this. I know this. Sometimes life just caves in on us, doesn't it? Just literally caves in. And we're just trying to figure out. Where do I go? What do I do? How do I find life in the future? And it's in these moments when we will either gain a right perspective of God or we will have a false perspective of God. Case in point, here's an example from our own life. I remember several years ago when we thought Pam had cancer. And, you know, everything kind of leading up there, we thought, okay, it's probably cancer. But until the medical professional in office says, okay, here's the results, out of your mouth, you officially have cancer. There's that not yet thing that is there where you're thinking, okay, maybe it's not. But then there's a, yes, it is true. And it's in those moments where you have to decide, 
what are we going to do? Are we going to, are we going to trust in that earth is our home? And so if we don't get to stay here, then everything is hopeless. Or do we in the midst of that recognize and realize that it doesn't matter what happens here. If we know him, we are his and we have the hope of heaven because this is not our home. We are not destined to live here forever and ever. And so we have an eternal perspective even when those things happen. Naomi has this thing happen to her and it drops in her lap and it's just crushing, it's bruising. And she kind of doesn't really know what to do with it. And for those of us who I think see God as good in the midst of our heartache, there's a growth that comes there that's really good. But for those who see God when trouble comes as there's something wrong with God's goodness, then there's something that really begins to build up into our life where we have a false perspective of who God is. So secondly this morning, um, I want to talk about, so that's kind of the meandering way of life, and that's what happens with Naomi and Ruth. It's just kind of, there's, there are some real turns, and they're going to turn now, and they're going to go back to Bethlehem. And Naomi is going to go back, and I want to talk now about the misery of Naomi's life. So look with me in verse 6. Uh, actually, we read 6. Let's look at verse 7. So she and her two daughters-in-law, verse 7, so they set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, No, turn back, my daughters. Why, you, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have no hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear you sons, would you therefore wait until they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake. Listen to what she says here. That the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. He's not against her, but that's what she thinks. And then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Look at 15. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. By the way, look right here. Bad advice. Tells Ruth, hey, your, your, your sister-in-law has gone back to her parents and to her false gods. Ruth, why don't you go back to your false gods? Naomi is just so crushed that she's lost all perspective that there's only one God, it's Yahweh. And yet in the midst of her misery, she just says, hey, Ruth, instead of, no, come be with me, with my people and my God, she says, go back. All right, look at 16. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you will lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Let me talk about the misery of Naomi's life. Let me just touch on it for a moment. The first one is simply this. She looks at her life and her daughters are like, okay, we, we, want, to, uh, we want to go back with you. And she's like, don't go back with me. Here's what you're going to get if you come back with me. You're going to get what I've got now. And all I've got now is misery and pain. So you don't want to go back with me. I don't have anything to offer you. All I've got is emptiness. All I've got is heartache. All I've got is hopelessness in regard to the future because there's nobody who can redeem you 
uh, in the family line to restore my son's name and continue them on. So uh, I don't have anything to offer you but pain. Secondly, she says, I cannot even fulfill the biblical mandate. Now, I'm going to read a scripture to you. This is, this is going to come into our brains. We're going to go, oh, that is just weird sounding, okay? Now, it's weird sounding to us in the West. Back in those days, it was not weird. Listen to this. This is Deuteronomy chapter 25, um, 5 through, through 6. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go to her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Does that just sound weird, doesn't it? Jake and we're Jake and Drew. So Jake's Drew, okay. <laughs> if this were to happen to you down the road one day, Drew, you'd have to marry his wife, okay? But anyway, back then, it's just, it's weird, is it not? In our Western mindset, we're like, oh my gosh. But anyway, it wasn't weird to them. It's kind of weird to us, kind of a weird feeling. But here's, here's, here's Ruth's misery. All I've got to offer you, daughters-in-law, is pain. And my life is so bad, I'm so miserable, I cannot even fulfill the biblical mandate. I'm too old to have other sons so that you can have sons to fulfill Deuteronomy chapter 25. Not only does that add to her misery, but thirdly, I think these three women, did you see it? I think they love each other. I mean, I, they, they are, this is not just mom and daughter-in-law. I think they love each other. They're, there's a friendship there. There's a depth of friendship, and they want to go back with Naomi, and there's an incredible love. And so she's heartbroken that they're going to have to separate, and she's encouraged them to stay back in Moab. And I think the third deep pain and misery that is contributed in Naomi's life is this, is that she blames God for her pain. God, if you were, nothing is new under the sun. I hope you realize that. What is the dominant thing people say in the Western culture? If God was a good God, then he would what? He would not allow pain and suffering to come. Well, God is an absolutely good God. There's never a moment that he is not good. He is holy. He is righteous. He is always good. In his sovereignty, he allows pain to enter into our lives. Instead of Naomi seeing this as an opportunity to testify about the greatness of God, that God's going to do something in her family, she just turns and she blames God. And so in 13, she says, The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And in chapter 1, verse 20, we haven't read that, that but look with me. So she said to them, this, they get back to Bethlehem with Ruth. And she tells the people in Bethlehem, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. Call me, I've got a new name, it's not Naomi, my name is bitter. And listen to what she says, for the, for, um, the Almighty has, has dealt very bitterly with me. In 21, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now listen here, this is absolutely critical. Sometimes in our life when the pain gets there and there's a misery that's there and we're confused, we exaggerate the reality of the situation. And I think that's what Naomi's doing here. She says, the Lord has testified against me. The Lord has not said anything against her. Not anywhere in the text has God spoken against her. As a matter of fact, God, 
God loves her and God has a plan for her. But she is so crushed by her circumstances that she can't see a hope in a future. And it leads to this misery and she can't see that there is a solution. But listen to me. And we're going to see the fulfillment of this in a moment. In the midst of misery, in the midst of thinking, God is against me. God has forgotten me. God does not have a plan to fulfill and redeem my husband's name. God is already at work back in Bethlehem. He has been at work in Bethlehem. And he's working in the life of a man named Boaz, who is Rahab's son. And he's doing a work there, and God is going to use them. They can't see it, can't imagine it, but God is at work. And here's the reality about God. In the dark moments of our life, God is always at work for our greater joy. And so we have to, in the moment when we can't see it, can't feel it, we can't sense it, we've got to know God ultimately is the highest good. He loves his children. He's for his children. The cross streams that. We trust and walk in faithful obedience, and we let God unfold what he's going to do and what God has planned. Now, back in Moab, I think God is at work, and he's at work in a woman named Ruth. And I think she's observed, observed. I think she's watched when she knew Elimelech, and I think with Naomi's sons and with her husband, that God is real, and there's a heart that she began to have for God. But what happens with misery is sometimes we misunderstand God's sovereignty. So thirdly, this morning, let's, I want to show you her misunderstanding of God's work. Listen to this about bitterness. Bitterness is a blindness. It is a burden, and is it a be- and it is a beast that touches and eats away everything that is good in our lives. Do not become a bitter, miserable person because it will eat away at everything. Because the lens that you will see is, hey, how's your day? Oh, well, do you know people like that? That's just, oh, they're just, there's like, there's never a good day in somebody's life. God has called us even in the midst of our heartache for a greater joy, not just happiness. I think God's for joy and God's for happiness. But if we had to choose for the two, God would want us to have joy because joy supersedes circumstances. Happiness often is connected to good circumstances, and so it's critical for us to see that. But Naomi just cannot see it, and here's what she can't see, and she misunderstands. God is already at work in Israel. What's growing again in Israel? Crops. So God's already at work, and so when this comes to her, she should recognize God's at work again in Israel. Secondly, she thinks God's hand's against her, and so she, she misunderstands what is happening and taking place in her life, and she thinks that God's hand is against her, and so she can't see a solution in any kind of way that she can imagine. But listen, she can't imagine a solution, but God can kind of imagine some things and do some things that we can never even think of. He is so great, so good, and he is already at work, and they cannot see it. And while she can't see it in a moment, listen to this. In the pain of her life, in the worst times, God is at work behind the scenes of two single widows' lives, a daughter-in-law and a mother-in-law, where an earthly king, the greatest king, King David, is going to come, and then ultimately the king of kings is going to come. But in the moment, all it is is misery. There's no hope. There's no direction. And I believe, again, God is always at work for our greatest joy. We simply have to trust. So God's visited again. She can't really hear it, can't really sense it, even though it's kind of caused her, I guess I can go back. God's hand was not against her, but she thought it was. 
And then God was not to blame for the calamity that's come. Now, she had two great stories at her disposal. And let me tell you the two stories that she had. Job is a contemporary of Abraham. They lived about the same time Job did. And so she could have had the story of Job about how God was sovereign in the midst of the things that happened and taken place in Job's life, so she could have trusted. She also had the life of Joseph in Genesis, where his brother sold him, but God was at work all the way to get him to a place that Joseph would be a redeemer for this family and for this nation. And so she just couldn't see it. And sometimes that's what happened. When we have a false understanding of God's sovereignty and God's goodness, we can't see sometimes, even in the midst of the stories that tell us that God is at work and God is doing something. So I want to talk, to, I want to talk for a moment now next, um, fourthly this morning, some marks about Ruth's faith. There are some unique things about Ruth. And the first one is simply this. Uh, chapter 1, verse 16. When Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Here's what Ruth is saying here. Marks of her faith. She is willing to forsake her family, her heritage, her clan, her tribe, all of that to join God's people. She's willing to just forsake it and to move on. And she becomes this beautiful picture of Christ where um, the love of Christ is one of those where we love Him, where real love is given and where it's costly and it forsakes everything. And Ruth does that for the sake of following Naomi and following Naomi's God. She was also willing when to follow Naomi all the way back to Bethlehem. That meant this. She was never going to marry again. And she was going to remain childless for the rest of her life. So it's not only is she forsaking her God and her family and her gods uh, back in Moab and her heritage. But she's also saying this. To go with you, Naomi, means I'm not going to marry again. And I will be childless for the rest of my life. Because there's no sons to fulfill the promise or the mandate of Deuteronomy 25. She's also going to leave everything that she knew to come into everything that is new. Language, people, culture, food, religion, all of that. She's willing to walk away from it. She's also willing to just completely never return to Moab. She's willing to go and not return back to see her parents, cousins, brothers, home, all of that. She's willing to go and identify herself completely with God's people. And you see the mark of her faith finally where she says, your God, Naomi, is my God. I love the personal pronoun there. Not your God remains your God, but your God, Naomi, my God, my God, my God. I know, I, I want to know him. Your God is going to be my God. And I tell you, Ruth, and we'll see some things here in just a moment, is an amazing woman of faith. And I, I pray this, pray this this week. I pray that our church, LifePoint, will be filled with the kind of women like Ruth. And we'll see in a moment, she was a a woman of unbelievable integrity. All right, we're doing all four chapters, but it's going to zoom now, okay? So hang in here with me. Go to chapter 2, and I want to... They get back to Bethlehem. In chapter 2, verse 1, Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. I said this in the first service. If any of y'all get pregnant and you have a son... Boaz would be a great name. You can call him Bo. Don't call him Boaz. They'll get beat up on the playground maybe, but, but uh, you could call them Bo, all right? But uh, Boaz is a big, great, great name um, because he is a beautiful picture of Christ in the Old Testament. Verse 2, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean 
among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. So she's going to go, doesn't know who she's going to meet, but hoping to find favor. And so Naomi said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. This is not coincidence, by the way, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. And then Boaz said to his, the young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather from the, among the sheaves after the reapers. And so she came, and she continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Look at verse 8. Boaz said to Ruth, So he speaks to Ruth now. Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one. You you keep close to my young women. And let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? So he steps in to protect her. I've told the young men to leave you alone. And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And then she fell on the face, bowing to the ground, and she said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Twelve, may the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, He sees that she has come to trust in God to protect her in Israel. He sees that she's come to place herself under the wings of God. 13. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some of the bread and dip your morsel into the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. Look at the generosity. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed the young men, saying, Let her glean from among the sheaves, but do not reproach her. And, he, and also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. Look at 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. And she also, and she also brought out and gave what food um, she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And so she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, This man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And everything changes in verse 20. This miserable, bitter woman, no hope for the future sees a redeemer and Naomi said to her daughter-in-law may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead and Naomi also said to her this man is a close relative of ours one of our redeemers and Ruth the Moabite said besides he said you shall keep close by my young man until they have finished all of my harvest all right let's stop there great character I'll point out some things about Boaz's character and some things about Ruth's character Single ladies in the room this morning. You need to pursue a man like Boaz. Guys in the room this morning, you need to look for a woman like Ruth. Let me point out the character. One, I call him, first of all, about Boaz. He's Boaz the bitterness breaker. He's about to break the bitterness. He's about to break it, and he's going to break it because God has a plan for him and because he loves God and he loves righteousness. 
So he becomes the one. Why is he so kind? Here's, <clears throat> there's healthy speculation about things that aren't fully there in Scripture and there's unhealthy um, speculation. I want to do some healthy speculation. I think Boaz is a godly man and a kind man and a generous man because growing up, he had heard the stories from his mom about how God had rescued her from being a Canaanite in Jericho and had brought her into the family of God. She had gotten married and now she had a kid. And I think Boaz growing up listened to Rahab talk about how God had rescued her. And I think it probably had a profound effect upon his life and he recognized how good God is and how great God is. And he becomes this kind man to everyone. Not only is Boaz... Someone who, who is, I think has been impacted by Rahab in, in, in this idea of grace and kindness. He's also a godly businessman. Did you notice when he came to the field? He, the, he said to the workers, the Lord be with you. And his workers said back to him, the Lord bless you, Boaz. So there's this God-centeredness to his work ethic. His God-centeredness to his, his uh, love of the workers and their love of him. And so he's a man who, of integrity. He's a man of kindness. He's a man of unbelievable generosity. And I love what he says in 2.12 that he recognizes in Ruth, her love for Naomi, that the hand of God has been a part of that. I think he's a man of God. He's able to discern that Ruth has loved Naomi because Naomi loves, or because Ruth loves God. And there's an impact, and he recognizes that. And so he's a man of God. He's unbelievably generous. Did you notice he, he says, leave her alone. You come drink. Here's roasted grain. Hey, workers, leave out some, not just the stuff that she can kind of glean, Put out an abundance so that she can just get some of the best stuff. He's incredibly generous. Ladies, look at me. Look for a man like that. Look for a man like that, like Boaz, who loves God in that way. So guys, here's the character of Ruth. She is unbelievably selfless. So 2, 1 tells us that she, just, she tells Naomi, hey, I'm going to go glean in the field today. For the benefit, I've come here to help you, Naomi. I love you. Naomi didn't say, hey, daughter-in-law, go do something with your life. Ruth just says, hey, I'm going to go work today. And she's selfless, not thinking of herself, but she's thinking of Naomi. And she's incredibly selfless. Not only that, she's a hard worker. Did you notice the workers of Boaz notice what a hard worker she is? Boaz notices what a hard worker she is. 3.11 says, and we'll see in a moment, that the whole town of Bethlehem came to know that Ruth was a woman of godliness and a woman of integrity. Not only is she selfless, she's a hard worker, but she has great humility, Ruth does. When she goes to the field that day, she doesn't demand a handout from anybody. She says, I'll work for what I earn. So can I follow along? She doesn't ask for that. She doesn't assume that she has some kind of right because she's a foreigner or she's connected to Naomi. She's just, watch this, she goes to the field that day trusting that God's going to open the door. And God had already been at work. Now, she doesn't fully know this, but God had already been at work. And again, it's not a coincidence that she landed at Boaz's field, is it? No. God's sovereign hand has been at work because he's going to redeem a family. This right here tells us that God 
has a sovereign work before you and I were even born that we would need the cross to redeem us from our sin. And God has already always been ahead, always been ahead, always been ahead working, doing things to redeem a people. And so here you've got two people of great, great character. And when she gets to the field that day, I love Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. She's going to go and work. And she's just going to trust God to open the door and lead her. And he determines her steps to, to fall right at Boaz's field. Sixth, the message of the gospel just fills chapter 2. Let me touch on this just for a moment. Romans 3, 4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So she's there, and Boaz is so kind to her that day, and she falls at his feet and just says, Why are you so kind to me? I'm a Moabitess. I'm not even of you. Why are you so kind? And his kindness moves and motivates in Ruth this desire and this love in this respect that she has for Boaz because of his unbelievable kindness and generosity to her. Is that not the gospel to us? We were the enemies of God, and what did God do? God sent his one and only son to die, and that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life by faith in him. And so God's kindness is manifested and pictured in this story. Secondly, the favor of God is given to a foreigner in this story. And the favor of God is given to you and I. The grace of God is given to you and I who are enemies of God, born enemies of God. And yet through Christ, we can become in a relationship with Him. So the message of the gospel shows the kindness in Ruth and Boaz, the favor of God as He gives. And Ruth is unbelievably thankful. Did you see that? You know, proud people never say thanks. But people who are humble seem to be even more humble when God uniquely or someone else is used by God to do something in the recipients of grace and favor. And Ruth is just blown away at the kindness of Boaz. The third thing Boaz offers her that the gospel offers us is security. Hey, I've told my young man to leave you alone. You just go glean and you're going to be safe. You don't worry about the young man who might want to attack you and do anything. You don't worry about that. Um, I'm going to protect you. And we are protected, sealed by the Holy Spirit in our salvation. Lastly, not only does he give her security, but he gives her abundance. He just gives and gives and gives to her. Two more points this morning. Chapter 2, verse 20 is the turning point in these four chapters. The last part, she says, he is... This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth said, besides, to me, he told me to keep close and all of this. When Naomi and Ruth arrived in Bethlehem, Naomi was, just call me, just call me Mara. Call me Mara. I'm just bitter. I'm just bitter. I'm just bitter. I'm not happy. God's against me. There's no hope for my future. And then all of a sudden, when you hear about the hope that somebody can redeem you, it brings about hope. And I know I point us here all the time, and I'm never going to not point us here. This is the central reality of the universe, that God came and died for us. And the hope that is offered because God came to be on the altar of the cross, to be slain on our behalf, the only sacrifice that could satisfy the Father, we have such hope. And it's 17 years old. As a lost kid in high school, at the end of my junior year, 
Life was falling apart for me. It was kind of first world problems though, but it was kind of falling apart for me and I just was wrestling and my God was crumbling around me. I saw a movement toward hope that the cross offered me something that sports couldn't offer, that being popular couldn't offer, or anything else could offer. The Christ, Christ offered that hope by being my redeemer. And so watch what happens in the story. Do you have one of those mother-in-laws? Well, mother-in-law Naomi gets to scheming. She's like, well, Boaz, yeah, okay. Hmm. Yeah, he's part of our clan. You know, Ruth, he could redeem you and become your husband and could redeem your husband, Malon. And so she gets to scheming. She said, I got a motive for my hope. Got to get a marriage to happen. And so here's the deal, Ruth. Tonight, all the men are doing some stuff. And I want you to go in. And so let's, let's read the story. Chapter 3. Look with me. Chapter 3. Verse 6. So 1 through 5 is Naomi's plan. It's not a great plan. We'll touch on that here in just a moment. Verse 6 says, So she went down to the threshing floor, and she did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she, Ruth, came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, again, this is about marriage here, okay? This is about marriage, a redeemer of the marriage, the lost husband. Verse 10, And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now my daughter... Stop just for a second. Verse 11, who do you think is older in this? He calls her my daughter. He is. He may be 15 to 20 years older than Ruth. So he looks down. I'm not going to call my wife my daughter this afternoon, okay? That might cause me some problems at home. And so, um, but he's probably, with these words, he's older than her. And he says, and now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Listen to that about Ruth. Everybody in Bethlehem knew that Ruth was a worthy woman. Verse 12, And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight in the morning, and if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So she laid his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. All right, look here. We've got to close this up. So Naomi's scheming. Okay. I can redeem the loss of Elimelech and my two sons' name to fulfill Deuteronomy 25 if Boaz will marry Ruth. And then through that relationship, they can have children that will carry on my husband's and my son's name. Now watch this. Her plan is not wise. Wine, hard work, midnight, woman laying at your feet. That is a recipe for trouble, is it not? So her plan wasn't, she should have thought about a better plan. But because Ruth and Boaz are godly people, it's not a moment of temptation for them but it could have been a disastrous moment. Because when Boaz wakes up, <clears throat> Boaz has taken off his 
cloak. He's not wearing it. He's kind of covered himself up like a blanket. He's kind of covered up. She's down at his feet. And when she, he recognizes there's a woman down there. Hey, who are you? Hey, I'm Ruth. And when she says, will you cover me? Will you cover me with your cloak? Will you cover me? She is saying this. She's saying, I want, I want to marry you. I, I, I want you to be the one who redeems me and, and brings me and, and restores the fulfillment of Deuteronomy chapter 25. And so she's a little aggressive. I want you to be the one to do this. And so he says to her, godly man, he says, okay, I'll tell you what. I'm willing to do that, but there's somebody in our family that's more closer in line to actually marry you and to take over the line. And watch this about Boaz. He says this to Ruth right there at midnight in a moment that could have been a disastrous temptation. He says this, hey, Ruth, if this is going to happen, we're going to do this biblically. So there's somebody else who can redeem the land and can re- and marry you. Um, and so we're going to go to him first and see what he says. And if he wants to do so, then I'm fine with it. But if not, I will redeem you. I will be your savior. I will be the one who will step in. So here's what Boaz says. Our manner of life must always be biblical. That's what Boaz chooses right there at midnight and tells Ruth this. And then we see in chapter 4 the majestic hand of God. Luke chapter 4 verse 1. So now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, it's another relative, came by. And so Boaz said, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. And so they sat down, and then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, well, okay, I'll redeem it, Boaz. And then Boaz says, well, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Again, Deuteronomy 25. And then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance, take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. For this was the custom. I wish we could do some of these old customs. For this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one person drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, as this was the manner of attestation in Israel. Wouldn't that be great? Instead of, hey, you know, let me shake your hand here. Here's one sandal. You can't really use it anywhere, but here's a sandal of mine. So that's what they would do. And it was kind of a binding picture of things. And so verse 8 says, And so when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malan. And also Ruth and Moabite, the widow of Malan. And I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. And you are witnesses this day. Now look here. The gospel is verse 10. It's gospel. Guess who cuts you and I off from hell? Our Redeemer does. He bought us with his life. 
Jesus did. Bloodshed so that we could come to know him. And here's Boaz buying Ruth, bringing her into the family, redeeming her so that she's not cut off and that there's a movement of the name of the family moving forward. And these Old Testament pictures are beautiful pictures of the gospel. And lastly, this morning, we just see the majestic hand of God in this. Go back with me. Ten years, at the end of ten years, all that Ruth can show, here's my life, heartache, misery. God was at work back in Bethlehem in a guy named Boaz who was older than Ruth, had never seen her. And he, she comes back, God orchestrates things, even though man tried to, Naomi tried to orchestrate things, God worked in the midst of that. And Boaz redeemed her. And guess what happened? You know what happened? <laughs> so beautiful. Boaz and Ruth become the great-grandparents of King David. She is brought, Ruth, Moabite, foreigner, brought into the family line of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful story of grace, of God just working in the midst of a family to bring redemption in the midst of a family, to make it whole, to give it a future. And so here's King Jesus in his genealogy. He's got Canaanite blood because he comes from Rahab way down the line. And now he has Moabite blood, ancestry, which tells us early on, again, God was saying this, I'm bringing the Gentiles into the kingdom. I'm bringing them in. And Ruth and Rahab, are these beautiful pictures of Gentiles being brought in to the kingdom. Isn't that beautiful story? How God redeemed a family. A family. It's kind of cool. Seven days marching around Jericho. The walls fall down. All that's really awesome. I love the simplicity beauty of this. It just in one family, God just says, I want to show you what I can do. I'm going to show you what I can do. I can bring redemption to a family. That's our God, and I hope that it elevates our trust today that he's so trustworthy that he can do things. And I tell you, we just should fall on our face, pray and pray and pray and pray and trust and trust and trust, even when we can't see what he's doing. He's always at work for our greater joy, always at work. Let's pray.